WMDR 97.1, live and streaming. Uh, Judy and Steed and Paul on the panel. Good morning, and uh, I'm back to haunt you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, this morning... I escaped for a couple of weeks. Yeah, oh, we'll get back to that mm. in a second. So what have we got coming up today? Well, we have a very special uh, interview that I did at the Night Horse and Field Artillery Museum, and that I, I did earlier this week. And I spoke with... Uh, Bernie Dingle and he's been there for 31 years and so I have a four-part series today and we'll be touching on memorabilia, full-size dioramas, uh, milk deliveries, his adventures as a milky, uh, the oh, what else, oh how uh, soldiers survived a uh, hundred feet down in bunkers not just 10 feet, but 100 feet. And uh, let's see, the Battle uh, of Mons and the Angel of Mons. If you've never heard of it, uh, I'll tell you all about it. Or he will. He'll tell you all about it. Uh, and the workshops that uh, I visited that he had, quite, quite extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. So we'll come back to that. And a, a big thank you to Ron King, stalwart at uh, 3MDR, because of the, you know, the <laughs> he now realises uh, what is involved in an interview program. <laughs> so there you go. Welcome back, Paul. 
Oh yes, that's me. Yes, I'm back. Yes, I, uh, I'm, st- I'm still a little bit tender in certain areas. Mm. I uh, had to have an angiogram done, and it knocked me around a bit more than. Can you explain what that is? Well, it's a, it's a, an examination of the heart. They mm. they go in through either the wrist or the femoral artery in the groin. Mm. When they went in through my femoral artery on both sides, mm. and it left quite a lot of bruising. I was I was incapacitated for a bit. And it, I was a bit concerned about climbing those stairs. Actually, it's still tender. Mm. Uh, there was quite quite an extensive amount of bruising. It uh, turns out the coronary arteries are all good, so they, they send a, a, a wire up, a up, wire up in, mm. inside your artery, mm. all the way up to the heart. So you, it's local anaesthetic. So you're mm. lying there and you're watching the whole time. You can see everything happening on this massive monitor, it's really like the giant LCD TV, yeah, good heavens. flat screen TV. Mm. And uh, you know, you're wa- wide awake, are you? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's just a local anaesthetic, so you're lying mm-hmm. and you're watching everything. You're aware of everything that's going on, but you don't but feel course, anything. Well, do you? No, I didn't. Oh, the, all the pain started when the anaesthetic wore off. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, very, very tender. And uh, one of the most painful parts of it was after mm-hmm. the after the procedure, mm-hmm. because I had um, been they'd entered through the, the through an artery. They have to press firmly on the artery to clot the end of it over, otherwise you'll bleed to death once mm-hmm. once you've. Um, Punctured and you have problems with with uh, a thin thin blood or something or no I've, no yeah. no I've, I've, no I'm, I'm Ordinary, fine. Right? Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I had a, a blood clot when I was nineteen and after a serious accident, mm. and I was on anticoagulants then, which started to thin the blood. But no, my, my blood's quite good. It's just a standard procedure with anyone. I see. So I had to had to lay there while a nurse on either side of me pressed on each each of the femoral artery entry points for half an hour, right, and pressed hard. So it was agonizing mm, so you had bruises oh well that were bruises from that but just bruising in general you, mm. when you get a bit of bleeding under the skin mm. and it's still still a bit tender that's been nearly three weeks let's see three weeks on uh, on Tuesday so it's yeah, mm. two and a half two and a half odd weeks but uh, yeah look a bit more invasive than I, I imagine mm. uh, the follow-up is going to be possibly an aortic valve replacement hmm Apparently, my aortic valve isn't flashed. They said that I've got the record when they tested me. <laughs> really? For, for the most closed-over aortic valve they've come across so far. So oh, you're it's breaking still, it, records with heart yeah. surgeons, well. It's still working. <laughs> anyway, so that's what's going to happen later this year. Hopefully, They'll, I've, I've got an appointment in May, mm-hmm. late May, to discuss it with the uh, the cardiology department. We mm-hmm. go from there. Oh, I see. Oh, so I say to people, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> I'm not concerned. I know that, that yeah. if it's my time, it's my time. If it's not, this mm. will get done and I'll keep going. Mm. And I think you okay. need to take that attitude with things. Mm. You, you can panic yourself to death, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you living in St Kilda for 30 years, uh, a lot of Polish uh, Jewish people uh, have the attitude of you say, how are you? And they say, don't ask. Don't ask you. <laughs> oh, next, the next off. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, Francis, uh, a friend of ours who often comes to me, uh, comes uh, with me to various functions uh, as a spotter. You know, she oh, look, there's somebody over there you should interview. Well, look over here, have a, have a look at this. And uh, we visited Cloud Hill Gardens uh, uh, earlier this week. And it I was actually uh, listening to the mm. show when you when you interviewed mm. the guy. Is mm. that the guy that wrote the book? Jeremy, yes. Yes, I was I was listening that morning mm. as much as I could. I was listening Jeremy on, on, my, mm. on my so-called smartphone. Oh yes, online. Yes, mm. yes. So uh, they you know rare plants at the nursery, and there's a, a garden shop there. 
And then uh, there's a little restaurant, Rhonda. She's flitting off overseas. And she had a sore knee and back, and I just sorted it out a bit <laughs> for her. And her thumb was going numb, so I just fixed that a bit. A uh, numb thumb. Yes, that's right. So if you uh, look at the big toe, it's the equivalent of your thumb. So worked on her big toe, and it fixed her thumb. So there you go. Now, what is going on with this test that they're, they're looking at for migrants or would-be Australian citizens? I mean, are they going to ask a stupid question like they do with the American uh, the American entry where you must fill be in an ele- must, must be an election coming up. Yeah. I mean, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? As if you'd put yes. Well, I can, I can go back. When, when, I, when I went through through customs at America in 1990, mm. it's mm. been how long, how long it's been since I was there, um, we had to answer questions. And in those mm. days... They've been involved I, in a... I don't remember mm. with... But I think the communist thing was sort of mm. on the back burner by mm. then. Mm. But I was actually asked if I'd ever been a member of the Nazi Party. Are you kidding? No, I'm not. I'm deadly serious. Really? Yes, I believe now everyone that goes through gets fingerprinted. They've taken mm. it to another level now. No, probably eye scan as um, well. But, yeah, they, they do ask you stupid questions like that. As, you know, if, if you want to come in there and you've got any <laughs> level of awareness at all, even yes. if you are or have been to any Nazi party meetings, would you say yes? And have you ever been a member of a, of, you know, of a terrorist organisation? Oh. <laughs> But look, the thing of it is, there's obviously an election looming in, mm. you know, sometime in the future. It's all just noise, lip service. And I, I listen to politicians being interviewed and how they're so expert mm. at, at not answering questions. They just skirt mm. around things. They never Bianchi ever answer. Peterson, the Premier, former Premier of Queensland, was the best at that. Don't worry about that. Oh, yeah. Wor- H- you know, you? What about this? Who are you? Where are you from? Yeah. No, oh, no. Yeah. Don't worry about that. What about this? Yeah. And that's how But that was one of his it. other ones. Who are you, anyway? Where are you from? Yeah, oh, feed the chooks. Garbage, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced that, that many of them, and I don't say all, because a lot of politicians mm. really are there amongst their constituents. Yeah. They especially, mean well. Especially people in marginal seats. Mm. But uh, I find it interesting... Across you know, the hills, they're very... Um, they're very good. Well, there's a lot of marginal Both seats. Sides. Mm. So, you know, pardon my cynicism mm. to a point, but yes, um, in certain areas they do get out there amongst the people. Mm. I remember, um, look, I've seen in some areas they actually turn up in some areas with a van once a month mm. and people can come and actually, so they they, they take their office to the people. Yeah. There's not enough of that. Mm. You know, um, I, I know that in my living memory, I can't even remember someone who was running for local council knocking on the door. I know we've got oh, we've got electronic media yeah. and stuff. We've got social media. We've got email. We've got all this other stuff now. Mm. But it's nice sometimes to get a knock on the door and well, actually actually, actually yeah. eyeball a person and be able mm. to discuss with them mm. where they're coming bit, from. A bit hard. I mean, often they will attend markets, you know, because that's a good yeah, way of yeah. meeting people, and uh, you know they take the time. But why is it that the majority of them only ever do that during election time? When they're campaigning, mm. why can't they have a, a program where they do that periodically? Mm. Oh, some some politicians some do. do yeah. Some do, but not mm. enough. Mm. In my in my opinion, many mm. of them have evolved from buffalo because they've got a hide as thick. <laughs> you know, they're going on about property ownership in the country. Yeah. Look at how mm. many of them own property mm. outright mm. and own multiple properties. Have a look at the mm. stats. Have a look at the at, at the reports that are available online. Mm. And you, you, you look at the, the average person on the street, they're struggling just to pay rent, let alone one day live the dream of owning a place. Mm. 
I keep getting rung by these electricity companies. Oh, I just say I'm very happy with who, who I have, please. Every time I, I uh, compare it, any other thing with Lumo, Lumo always wins, so I just don't bother. And I just thanks, thank you very much. You can't beat Lumo. Thanks all the same. Bang, bang. And uh, so thank you for your time and hang up. It just drives you crazy. And the Well, this has been going on for years, hasn't it? Mm. People have been complaining about these things. Mm. And look, I'm sorry for the people in these call centres. And I think... Oh, no, they have I, to make a, s- a certain number of calls. Yeah, I don't know whether they're even on wages in mm. one of these places. They might be on commission mm. only. Who mm. knows? But I know they've got to have university qualifications to get into some of these places. Mm. And I'm, I'm sorry for that, but... You know, when you're two-thirds of the way through putting a meal together for a family and these mm. people ring you up, and it's often at, at mealtime. Mm. Well, the other way round, every time I have a technical issue with my computer, instead of ringing somebody uh, that says, oh, I can get there tomorrow or later this afternoon or next week or whatever, I just ring Advanced Technical Solutions over... Guess where they are? They're in Montego Bay in, in Jamaica. No, she went of her own accord. <laughs> And I think I've, I said I think I'll have to travel over there and meet you all because I think I've spoken to most of you. Perhaps, perhaps you could bake some some scones. But but you they just might ring prefer pumpkin scones. And they're there, right there, yeah. twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. It's well, fantastic. If you're paying for a service, you expect <coughs> that. I know, but Why would it's you so rare that you actually get it. Get it. Get directly onto someone. Oh, yeah. Look, do you think I could, uh, I could go in my mobile phone? You're supposed to be able to download uh, inside the bowels of the phone on the laptop. Has your phone got bowels? No. <laughs> and the interviews that I'd done didn't show up on it, on the laptop. And I was tearing my hair out. So I rang, rang the IT people and they said, oh, yeah, just a second. And they looked and they said, no, you know, it's not there. So we did it another way with my drive. And uh, did it that way, but I didn't quite know how to do it, so they had to instruct me. But you know how wonderful is that? Oh, thank goodness! Wonderful. Yes. Now, did you know that teeth are being used to cure blindness? Teeth. Teeth. Yes. Teeth as in choo choo chomp chomp chomp. That's teeth. exactly right. I couldn't believe it when I blindness saw it. Blindness in who or whom or who or what? Well. And this is uh, the Herald Sun. You know, you believe everything you read, mm, of, of course, course, don't of you? Of course, yes. a very accurate, accurate uh-huh. document. Well, and yeah. this it might be by Amy Harris. A breakthrough operation that cures blindness by implanting a patient's tooth into their eye has been successfully trialled in an Australian first. The risky but remarkable procedure can restore 20-20 vision to someone suffering as much as a total corneal blindness. It was recently performed at the Sydney Eye Hospital with one of the successful procedures on a Goulburn man, 72, featured on Channel 9 60 Minutes. Uh, The second patient, a 50-year-old Cairns woman, now has 20-20 vision. And get this, how it operates. It begins by removing a patient's tooth, inserting a plastic lens through the centre, and then sewing it into the patient's cheek, for several months where it grows tissue to establish its own blood supply. Following that, a flap of skin and mucous membrane from inside the mouth is then sewn over the eyeball. 
Three months later, in a second operation, the new tooth lens is then removed from the cheek. It's sewn over the patient's blind eyeball and then covered with the flap of skin with an, operating, oper, uh, with an opening allowing the new lens to see clearly. Now, if you can follow that, you're a better man than I am. It's kind of bizarre, in. like something out of a, out of a movie. No. Oh. You sure it wasn't printed on April 1st or something? No, no, not at all. Because I've heard nothing about that in the media. No, no. You must do some research on the internet and look mm. into this. This yeah, sounds... Well, yeah, it, it might be fake news, but it just uh, comes as, as a surprise. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it comes as a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Three oh, months dear. surprise. Vesta, you know, Vesta situation. Uh, now there's a ten thousand offer to give up your seat. Now remember when Delta, uh, no, it wasn't Delta. It was uh, what airline turfed this poor bloke, the doctor off off the plane. He yeah, he, he, he got it. He was bashed. Yes. I don't know whether he fell, but I saw some of no, the. No, he footage. was dragged off physically. He, got a, he didn't have a broken tooth or something. Or? Mm. Yeah, but what Delta uh, are letting employees... He won't need to worry about working as a doctor again. I no. Can, I can imagine oh, oh, imagine that, the lawyers getting onto that one. Yes. Well, Delta is letting employees offer customers nearly $10,000 to give up seats on over-booked uh, flights, hoping to avoid an, an, an uproar like the one erupted but at United look, in, after in, a passenger was dragged off a plane. In a busy place like America, say you're mm. travelling from one capital city to mm. another, right? Mm. Yeah. On a normal domestic flight. Say you're going from Melbourne to Sydney in mm. Australia. Now, even in Australia, there's three or four airlines at least that are doing those flights. Mm. Why can't they just stick their employee, if there's no, no room, put them on another flight ah, but with, they... an, with another company? What's the problem? Well, I suppose they'd have to pay then, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, but it'd, it'd or maybe like... they should have reciprocal rights between airlines. Well, they could do mm. that too, but, mm. but either way, it'd be a lot less than 10 grand. Mm. Well, United probably, is... Re... You're probably talking a $100 flight or something mm. over there. Mm. Um, I don't see the problem. Just fly, if, if you're if you're an employee of uh, airline A, mm. why can, if if there's an available flight with airline B, yeah. put them on airline B. Mm. Maybe I'm being um, um, practical. No, maybe I'm being simplistic. <laughs> yes, but well, it, it, there seems to me that it'd have to be other ways mm. than dragging a passenger off a flight like that. Mm. That was just extraordinary. Well, apparently, usually people they give them something. I don't know what. What a bag uh, of lollies. No. No, some can some can uh, cash soft, incentive, can of and drink. and two out of the three said, "Oh, okay, I'll do it for ten." But of course, I'll the doctor had had to be in the hospital mm. the following, uh, you know, at, at that after the flight, he was attending to. So they picked patients. the wrong. They picked the wrong person. They did, and United is reviewing its own policies, including incentives for customers, and will announce. Uh, any actions by April the 30th. Well, I can see that costing said, him something like $10 the million. The airline would not disclose, disclose the current compensation limit. Well, we're, we're talking about the land of litigation, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> the land and of litigation and milk and honey. The lawyers love it over mm, there. Other airlines said that they were examining their policies. <coughs> Excuse me. American Airlines updated its rules to say that no passenger who has boarded the plane will be removed to give a seat to someone else. So, look, I'll, I'll, I'll be see. quite honest. I've never heard of that before. Obviously, oh. this has been a thing that's happened in the past where they've asked someone to give up their seat for an employee. Mm. I, I haven't heard of it before. Obviously, it goes on. But this, uh, mm. th in this day and age, with everyone on the planet having a camera in their hand, mm. um, there's no possible way of doing things now and then saying well he said she said mm. 
There's, <laughs> everyone's too quick to just hold their phone phone up and start filming. Well, that's, that's how they the get thing. a lot, lot of news footage these days from that's people, right, people yeah. with mobile phones. I wonder what the going rate is, depending on what the footage what, is. What, to sell something to a news mm. organisation? Yes. I don't know. Depending what it is, I suppose. Mm. Maybe they should advertise their rates. <laughs> Everybody's an, ind- an indirect paparazzi. Mm. So what mm. else uh, was on your mind? I think you mentioned... It was always on my mind. It was something see. else... Uh, there are a oh, couple ga- of things. Gambling advertising oh, is yes. one thing. Mm. Um, I, I hear on the news that uh, the AFL and certain other sporting mm-hmm. organisations are uh, going in to see the government. They're, they're, they're up in arms over mm-hmm. uh, tightening up of gambling advertising. And I thought to myself straight away when I heard that, I thought, mm-hmm. hmm, self, I thought, are they that um, insecure about the ability of their code of sport to survive without gambling, that they have to get very nervous and upset if the government talks about tightening up on gambling advertising? Mm. Well, I look... I think gambling advertising is out of control, personally. Mm. Absolutely. It should be banned from television, uh, those gambling ads. If people want to gamble, that's their Mm. right. But I I just find it extraordinary. The level, the the access to gambling now, the Mm. amount of it, and... And the kids, you know, will think it's normal. Mm. And it's not normal. I mean, you can gamble on... Uh, for two up, uh, which they don't have at the casino anymore. Uh, well, see that that because the, the, that people were winning. Yeah, the, the odds, <laughs> the odds in two up mean you've got a chance. That's right. Well, you look at in pe- Anzac pe- Day, pe- people mm. who play blackjack. Before you go to Anzac, mm. mate, people who play play blackjack and get really good at it and count cards mm. get barred from casinos. Yes, because they found a way that they can win. Now there was a film. Yes, about th- that. There was a movie. I can't uh, think Kevin of. Spacey mm. was uh, the the. Uh, main protagonist there mm. and he was he was a card counter and he taught these blokes how to do it i have seen the film and they I sort of double crossed him and then he mm. double crossed them and then years later that's right he had he was going for a an interview to get into mm. a university and they said well tell me something about yourself that's unusual or or different so he recounted the story about his gambling yeah. prowess and how it all backfired and said, well, you know, that's it's, it was the most amazing story. <laughs> said nobody could ever make that up. So but, he you was know, granted. It, it, is, it is typical of, mm. of gambling institutions stacking things. That th- things are it's always mm. stacked in favour of the, the organisation. Mm. You know, with, with horse racing, now, the larger percentage of people don't make money out of horse racing. No. I, do, I do know of one person who is a professional punter. He would be... Probably nearly 70 now, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to school with his younger brothers. He was the oldest in the family. Mm-hmm. He never had what you'd consider a regular job, as far as I know. Yep. But he'd be up at 4 o'clock in the morning out at the tracks watching the horses. He'd go to all the race meetings. Yeah. So he worked, as far as I'm concerned, full-time. made it a career. He worked full-time at it, mm-hmm. and he made a living out of it. Mm-hmm. But oh, majo- an ex-boyfriend majo- of mine uh, many of years ago, he, he was a punter, a professional punter, mm-hmm. and he would just go to... Uh, a race meeting and bet on one race on one horse. Mm. I actually worked with mm. a guy like that uh, when mm. I was in the tramways years ago out at Preston Workshops in um, St George's Road, Preston. There was a guy there who used to get it. He, he didn't drive. Mm. He would book a taxi to, to go to, say, Geelong races or Kilmore races to bet on one race. Mm. He, he, you know, he would follow, and if he won, great. If he lost, he'd still go home. He'd, he'd just bet on one race. He was a very controlled gambler. But that's rare. There's so many people I've known that have lost just about mm. everything. And be very careful, listeners. Mm. If you if you establish a betting account with Crown, 
crown bet because they will not give you your money back uh, unless you turn it over. Is the phrase? Yeah, no. I remember you got you got a tax, tax you get, will. Did you get your money back in the end? Finally, uh, about nine months later, when I made another phone call mm. about something else. You're one you of know? the few people I've ever met that would dig, <laughs> dig your heels in to get a result. Well, I've found, most most yeah. people walk away mm. in disgust. Well, a hundred dollars is a hundred dollars. Thanks. Yeah, and they mm, is. they gave me the money I won, but they wouldn't give me the money. I'd put in. I only bet once a year, and that's yeah, Melbourne on the Cup. Melbourne Cup. Mm. And I didn't happen to be near um, a uh, attached, you know, agency to to put a bet. So on. next time you'll use the TAB, yeah. Oh yes. Um, or up up the laneway mm, with the with the I SP bookie. <laughs> no, I had to go online, and it took me probably all day to try yeah. and find the person responsible who was head of. Crown and mm. who was head of marketing and who's head of whatever you just don't you know because going round in circles with the first call, which was uh, and they said well didn't you read the fine print I said yes I did uh, I actually did and he said well didn't you read that it you know you have to turn over your money I said what do you mean turn over he said you have to bet it again I said well why didn't you put that bet again not turn over that the average person would have no idea what no, you mean. No, I wouldn't have a clue. No. As, as with many things, mm. when you... But so they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it until mm. finally I got a hold of the person that mattered. The chopper, not the block. That's exactly... And they <laughs> rang me back. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah, so there you go. Look, it, it, it's the same with so many things. I remember seeing a book once called uh, titled Don't Sign Anything. <laughs> you know, and what they were saying is read everything before you sign. And oh, look, yes. We sign up for insurance policies for different things car house mm. uh, income whatever we, we we have many insurance policies at different times in our lives and of, often there are escape clauses in there you know that even if you read through it sometimes mm. and unless you can are, are able to pay a lawyer mm. to read through some of these things because often they're written in legal-esque no legalese know, legalese rather <laughs> See that that's me showing my my lack of education there. but did you know year 10 education that if you look at a legal dictionary it bears no Legal resemblance. Ease, of course. Yeah. It bears no resemblance to an ordinary dictionary. So no, of course it doesn't. No, no. So the definitions of a, of a particular word, and I don't have a legal dictionary handy, but you can look up maybe a word that is used in a legal speak, and look up the average dictionary and find out what it means, and then look up a legal dictionary and see what their definition is. Totally different. Well, I, I know mm. that you and I, over the years, with, with to do with research for the show, mm. with uh, different things that we've uh, been dealing with, mm. have sat in court cases, uh, sat in on in the public gallery, you mm. know, in, in Melbourne Magistrates Court, mm. uh, Dandenong. A Mackenzie's friend. Well, yeah, that's, that's mm. something that uh, I'd never heard of until then. Mm. Someone who can give you advice that isn't a lawyer, but mm. but the, the magistrate or the judge can also jump on you over yes. that too. But uh, someone can be in the witness box. Giving testimony, and they can uh, a word that they can uh, drop out might mm. be taken by the barrister, and they can pull them apart because mm. the barrister is, is is much more, especially the prosecuting barrister, yes. they're much well more, more well versed in what mm. the different implications of that particular particular word mm. can can be, can implicate, you know. Mm. And, and the innocent witness at times is in there, and they 
and they can be attacked from different um, different angles. So yes, yes, it, it's fascinating sitting. Everyone at some stage in their life should go and sit in the public gallery oh, of a court. It is fascinating to watch, even if it's just a, a traffic court, just a, a magistrate's court where there's traffic mm. cases being. It's interesting to sit and observe, even to observe the people coming and going. You know, you can see mm. there's people from all walks of life. It's not just not just battlers. It's all the way from millionaires to to, to, mm. to battlers, people who decide they want to. Uh, go to court mm. over there. If everybody there, went to court over their disputed fines, oh, parking they, fines, they, they'd it lock would it down. Cl- already yeah. the courts have to devote a day, a week, or a day, a fortnight just for parking or speeding yeah. fines. Well, so many people feel like they've been treated unfairly these, with these yes, things. These inter- interlocular, 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 something. I say legal esque, you say interlocular. <laughs> It's, and, it's, you, and you're someone who matriculated. <laughs> At least I had an excuse. <laughs> no, they had. No, they. They. If you have lost your license for yes. driving, um, I was in in a court listening to. Uh, I was there for someone else, and they. You're talking about an ignition interlock for people who've been drink yeah, driving. One of those things, yes. Yeah. And yeah, they're not interlockers. <laughs> <laughs> it was similar. Oh, it yeah. started with the same. Close, but no banana sandwich. No. <laughs> Close, but no cigar. No, no, so I don't like cigars. I'll go with banana no, sandwich. But they, you have to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month for this machine to be inserted, and you never own it. You can only hire it. You can't buy it, and even though you may be disqualified for for twelve or eighteen you months, you also or there's two also years. ongoing costs because they have mm. to be recalibrated periodically. Mm. I know. So a, a who friend, owns? Who stands to gain? That's what I'd like to know. Well, look, it's a Which big company. Everything's big business. Mm. I know a friend of mine. Um, I was in a Repco store with a mate one time, and they had these portable ones, right. portable breath testing devices, and it was a pretty good price too. Mm-hmm. He bought it and the guy and he said, so what's the deal with this thing? How long does it last? And he said, well, it's good for so many breaths. Oh, so, right. no, there was quite a few. It was 100 or something. So after you've used it, yeah. X, after you've used it X amount of times, <coughs> you then need to take it to the company and get it recalibrated because oh. because they, they lose accuracy after mm. they've been used. You mean your breath spoils it? Oh, well, I guess, yeah, if you want to put it that way. But um, so the, It the, must the, have a charcoal thing inside look, it and when you breathe not, into it. it I don't it, know. I don't know what the technology mm. is, but I know that uh, I have spoken to people who have mm. had these interlocking devices and mm. you do have to get them recalibrated. So apart from the enormous cost mm. to have it, um, and if, if they're a chronic drink driver, they just drive a different car. Mm. You know, they're, they're, you can just go and buy yourself another car and drive it. But don't they have, don't they, don't you have to, I don't know what the regulations are, but I suppose they can't make you drive. Can they and use it? Well, yeah, the car won't start without it. No, but, but, but I'm saying, but if you're, I'm but saying there's yeah. so many people that are have been chronic offenders. So mm. If someone's a chronic alcoholic, mm. well, they'll find another way. Yes. Uh, but look, oh, well. it's it's a it's a complex thing. It's mm. a very complex thing, and uh, I don't know. Mm. You know, we're, we're going on about all this to uh, to do with drink driving and all that. Well, twenty four hour venues. Mm. You know, you, it's it's become so much easier to get access to alcohol now. So much easier. Mm. You remember when we were kids, um, you couldn't get it on Sundays. Now, have they banned alcohol Unless you knew someone who was doing sly grog. Oh, yeah. Have they banned alcohol ads on television? I can't recall mm. seeing any. 
Yeah, I can't recall. Maybe they just don't register. Mm, I'll have to do some research on that one. Mm, I don't know. So maybe they've... And, of course, they've got the plain packaging. Could you imagine plain packaging on liquor? On drinks? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that would ever happen. Myself, you'd look like an Elkie, wouldn't you, in a plain paper bag? (laughs) 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 Plain labelling. (laughs) Oh, boy. Look, I think uh, we'd better go to some messages, but you're listening to 3MDR 97.1 on your dial, live and streaming, and uh, we'll have some messages and then a bit of music. And then we'll go to a special interview, a series of uh, four uh, into four segments. And I visited the Light Horse and Field Artillery Museum in Nanagoon. And uh, absolutely fascinating. So if you are into the First, Second World War and you want to know what the Milky did during the 60s, um, I'll tell you what, fascinating stuff. Okay. <laughs> Wellington Village Shopping Centre in Roval is a great place to shop and dine. Wellington Village has Super IGA and Aldi supermarkets and 25 stores for your shopping convenience. Providing fresh food, pharmacy, health, banking, restaurants, cafes, takeaway, floristry, party supplies, hair and beauty and more. Wellington Village Shopping Centre has a great community feel. You can find it at 1100 Wellington Road in Roval, on the corner of Brayburn Parade and Wellington Road. Open seven days a week. Wellington Village, your community shopping centre, sponsoring 3MDR 97.1 FM. Hi, this is Nisi Smith, and I have a show called Now and Then. I play songs by a large variety of musicians from the 30s to now, with a focus on locals, all sorts of stuff from my personal collection, and musos on the New Market label. So tune in on a Wednesday between 3pm and 5pm here on 3MDR 97.1 FM. Monday mornings. Well, here at 3MDR, we are pleased to give you an extra reason to do so. From 10am to 1pm, JB on The Corniest Show will give you added commitment to your loathing of Mondays. 3MDR is a serious radio station. This program is not. That's right, 10am to 1pm Mondays. Avoid that time slot at all costs. Get it, get it, get it, because I like to see you win it. Do it to it, JB. Do it to it. Actually, I'm just here for the tunes. 3MDR 97.1 live and streaming. That, of course, was John Williamson with Diggers of the Anzac. And I thought that was a a great song to um, bring in the next um, lot of interviews. Mm. Well, Mm. I had a fascinating afternoon down at the uh, Light Horse and Field Artillery Museum in Nanagoon. And I met Bernie Dingle and his wife Frances and they uh, gave my friend Frances as well, Frances Lester, who came with me, whose father was also a part of the uh, Second World War, but he was in the... As were both of our fathers. Yes, that's Mm. right. 
and so we had a she put a you know little cup of tea and yeah cake and everything it was like i'd be interested to have a look mm. one time because mm. i'm fascinated with all of this sort of stuff mm. having a, a, a direct connection mm. although, although my father was in the raf he was mm. scottish but but well, uh, it's all connected, isn't it? Mm, well, the they, experiences of these guys and what they went through. They've had so many different groups, of course, mm. um, and they've had the museum for 31 years, and they have enormous sheds with thousands of memorabilia and ranging from over 40 honour boards. Wow! Uh, medals, full-size yeah, yeah. dioramas, military museum, uh, military vehicles, I should say, equipment. Uh, uniforms and horses and and uh, figures dressed in various uniforms and in a particular room I I was just uh, so surprised when I went into this room there were all these people standing there you know it felt, life felt, size I bet, I bet it felt, oh, felt ghostly there was so much to see uh, and of course you've got a direct yeah. connection because your mm. dear old dad started out in the light horse before he went into the RAAF didn't he that's right yes and they became trained yeah. up as a fighter pilot mm. Mm. That's right. Well, let's see what happens here. Bernie takes up the story. Ah, one second. Good morning, Bernie. We can start 2,000 years ago. It goes back to the Middle East, the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, the Crusade. It represents Istanbul with the Sultan's paid guards. We have some swords that came from there. Really? I can see in the cabinet you've got a whole range of things and any woman would be gobsmacked to see a range of jewellery. T. Lawrence is represented there because he played oh, yes. a big, big role in the First World War. Mm -hmm. A set-up complete with a lamb, I can see, yeah, and the, the donkey. No, I'm standing in front of me. And there's the King's War. Oh, absolutely. Uh, how many hands high would that be? 17 hands. He Taller than I am, I can tell you that. That clothing goes back to before the First World War for when the first Saud king of Arabia, his name was King Ibn Saud. We have a field hospital. This yes, is it's, a, a it's set up with a huge uh, canopy tent. An Ashford litter, a stretcher on wheels. They were designed by a famous medical officer, John Farley. He was in the Crimean War in Russia. Whilst the cavalry were galloping past him in the open field, he was drawing up the plans of one of these on wheels for speed to save more lives. Mm. And these were used right through the First World mm. War. It's like a, a tiny a stretcher with a little canopy on top. But they're mm. Mainly for the hospitals, for receiving the uh, and dispersing mm -hmm. from the hospitals. But they're generally over. They were used right through the Western Front and in, in the, in the Middle East in the First World War. Right. There's a selection of different wheelchairs. The no, wheels are quite, pretty sturdy. They're quite robust. Mm. The, the wheelchair industry and the prosthetic, prosthetic limbs, they played a key role in duration of the First World War and at home at the end of the war mm -hmm. because there were so many limbless soldiers. They had to be mobile to get them home. The, the oh. industry that was uh, started due to the rate of casualties in the First World War was enormous. Mm. It was a great big... There, there would be a, a huge lot of, a lot of, of limbs. lost limbs. That's mm. right. The hospital mm. trains were coming back mm -hmm. fully late oh. for months and months Month and, and months. months. So there's lots of stories about that one. Yes. Uh, we're just going past some horses here who... They were used in the Boer War in South Africa, dated, and they've seen service in the Middle East in the First World War as well. Mm, you'd swear, listeners, that you were right in the field because they are full-scale. In incredible. This is an officer's mess cart. Mm. You'd swear that the horses would come alive. Well, they look very much alive. Do they in, in, in the setting. In here. Yes. At night, do you ever talk to them? I must say I do. <laughs> have you, have you named the horses? Not really, no, no, but it's uh, it's very close to our heart, what yes. we're representing, and it's something mm. that's very, very important to us as a mm. family. The story must be told. You must have had over the years, you know, a rapidly decline. They can't get out. So been... over the years you would have had many people coming here. 
they they love to come and they don't mm. want to go. When they put on a cup of tea and biscuits, complimentary, and they're just lovely people. Mm. And and the, some of them are the at the age where they can that have contacts from the further. Yes. So it's it sort of fits in nicely. Mm. So the three horses here. Right. They're animals in war, and of course we sent a fair few, mm. fair few hundred thousand away for the first world war. Mm, talking about horses. Horses. Mm. Um, the horses were on what you call... Hundreds of thousands. Yes. At the outbreak of the First World War, England mm. had a million horses they owned ready mm. for war. A million by 1914. Mm. Horse stall ships, they were the ships that were set up for the horses to be loaded so mm. they could be shipped across to the war in Europe to start with in the Middle East. I know with the British, they lost round about over 6,000 horses and mules for whatever they had, had about 1,000 animals. Mm per ship. They never got to do any service because the German submarine sunk them at sea. Oh. They, they lost all of them mm. at one stage. Three weeks was the limit for uh, transporting a horse mule or whatever across the seas. Anything over three weeks, there was troubles mm. with um, travel sickness, colic, pneumonia, all sorts of mm. problems. Mm. And I know that this, the horses that were sent away to South Africa for the Boer War were the ships laden with the horses and mules going over to South Africa. On the way over, there was an outbreak of strangles. What does that mean? It's like a swelling in the throat and they die with it. Oh, how Like a big cyst. And they shot about three quarters of them on the ship. Highly <sighs> contagious. And the seas were so rough on the way over, mm. they couldn't slip the horses' bodies over the decks because of the, of the mm. buoyancy of the, mm. the, with the trip. So the, the horses were rotting on the decks. Oh, goodness so there's a, lots of there's lots and lots of stories and mm. I, I know they're very very they're not what you call palatable in certain mm. ways but it's the truth and it's the story that must be told mm. would people <clears throat> that have endured world war one their sons and daughters and families that have visited here would that obviously bring back memories of something that the fathers or grandfathers have told them. There's some of the, one of our collections from behind glass. We have the Tubb collection, and Frederick Harold Tubb was one of seven recipients of the Victoria Cross at Lone Pine, and he was one officer that... Oh, he served in the Boer War with his brother as well earlier, and then he ended up doing a, an officer's training course at the newly formed Untroon, and he and his brother ended up... They were both transport officers by the outbreak of the First World War, and on the way over to the, the Middle East, Frederick Harold Tubb, he had his own horse. He took over... Mm. and some of the officers took theirs as well and he found out that his horse was becoming ill and they tried to vet it and all sorts of things mm. and it died on the way over and I know some of the family and they've been here over the years and they have a letter that Edric Harold Tubb wrote to their grandparents mm. at the time stating that what happened with his horse had broke him, broke his heart really because oh. he was on the way to war and he'd lost his horse on the way Yes, nothing's worse than that if you're close No, to well, they didn't have them long enough to get to know them in lots mm. of ways The artillery horses in the First World War and mules pulling the guns uh, on average were lucky to see a life for three weeks they died in their thousands most days oh, that's yeah. why there's all quick release harness can I show you here yes certainly it can was, you just describe that so that it's, it's, it's a coupling mm -hmm. that slips onto there it was designed so it could be undone uncoupled mm. quickly and mm. coupled up quickly as I understand it there was only one horse that came back is that right the books I suppose mm. you'd say that oh, was right. sandy <laughs> yes. a lot of things between the lines you know I see right uh, there, was, uh, there were Two, two uh, horses went back to New Zealand. One died on the way home, on the mm. way back to New Zealand, mm. and the other one was a mare that made it. I see. Sandy was the horse that was used for the officer with the name of Bridges, and he was back to Maribyrnong, I think it was. Mm. The horse grazed there for probably seven years or so. He was going blind. Mm. and he had to be put down. In How did your fascination for the Light Horse Brigade and the Military Museum, what started your 
affection for When him. I was a little boy, I had uncles and aunts and that, as mm -hmm. they were called, mm -hmm. and friends of the family, I suppose you'd say. Right. And they gave me little bits and pieces mm -hmm. as a young lad, and I kept them in the wardrobe and in drawers. And, and as I was getting older, they all of a sudden were there still. They were interesting. I've always had a, a keen interest on Australians. Uh, and, and our Commonwealth military history, something that I've found very, very important. There's a photograph. Right. You know, we no, it's all right. We're, we're just meandering around. <laughs> I'm just following you. You know, every inch of the place. That photograph there in the gold frame, that's my grandfather in there. He was with the 3rd Australian Light Horse. Mm -hmm. He enlisted from Launceston. He was 24 and 11 months of age when he left to serve in the Middle East. He had a lot of sickness and he had a lot of problems. He was with the, the 11th Reinforcements with the 3rd Light Horse. He had piles, pyorrhea and diarrhoea. Oh, goodness. And he had an accident on his horse and in the fall all his teeth were dragged out oh. and then he contracted two bouts of malaria Goodness so he, he served for four and a mm. half years he, he never got to Damascus he never got to Gallipoli he would have mm. but he wasn't wiped off well he, mm. he was instead of riding his uh, horse he was driving trucks around the camps and he was receiving the casualties from the field ambulance wagons to the hospitals that's about all we really know but he joined up for the second world war when he was in his 50s i think and i think they told him to go home <laughs> but he, he was still getting malaria but, uh, i've got all his paperwork mm. from what the hospitals he's been in and all that sort of thing and he got the three medals so right so Fair I, enough. I, I represent him each mm -hmm. time we the ceremony oh that's good so, uh, now we're going to take a break well uh that's the first section of that uh, because I I decided that uh, each section uh, was separate so that we could uh, manage from one to the other. Um, now we can either go on to the second part straight away Paul or you can uh, uh, find uh, something else. What, what, what's your preference? Well, I do have a piece of music lined mm -hmm. up that, oh, I, that I, we could play a bit of that, and then mm -hmm. I can fade it down and go into the okay. second second one if you like. It's um, okay. actually the overture from the film Rob Roy, mm -hmm. which was an interesting movie about a man who was at um, in, in, uh, at battle with great odds. That was a great film. I mm. think Liam Neeson was in that. From memory, it's a great. Yes. It is a great film. Yes. Well, the second part of uh, the the Light Horse and Field Artillery uh, Artillery Museum. Uh, continues with Bernie Dingle and uh, who at 17 he had some adventures in the dairy industry but before that we'll go to a little bit of music and then come back and you're listening to 3MDR 97.1 on your dial live and streaming
I'm down at the Lighthorse and Field Museum in Nanagoon, just out of Pakenham, and I'm talking with Bernie Dingle, who has a the sheds full of memorabilia. And I'm just looking here at the Larches Dairy. And I'm wondering, Bernie, uh, what attracted you to get into the dairy business at the, that the time, coach the coach building, and uh, as a farrier? What happened there? I used to play the wag from school because I used to sneak to the workshop Mm. In Caulfield, I wanted to be a coach builder. Right. I didn't know there was no future in it, but <laughs> that was what I was told later on. Mm. But uh, there was over a thousand horses on the roads in Melbourne in those days. Mm. Some of the councils were still using them, and uh, market gardeners. And we're talking about the 50s, 60s? 60s, mm -hmm. Sarah, and the uh, late 60s. Mm. I grew up in that sort of a world because it was interesting for me. Mm. I wasn't interested in cars like all the other fellows. Mm. They all couldn't get one quick enough, and I thought, I, I'm, mm. I'm getting a horse. When Frances and I were married not long, she became due for having a child, mm. and her water broke. We were all sort of half awake, waiting for things to happen, and, and I said, don't worry, I'll be back in a minute, love. I went up, we had stables behind the house, mm. the two workhorses there, and I had to get a horse by the name of Tiki. I said, come on up, out of bed. <laughs> this is at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. I harnessed him up in the, 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 in the jinker and I had lights on it with a battery mm. and I bundled Francis in and I drove into St Vincent's Private. I was waiting in the hospital until lunchtime that next day and the nurse said to me, Mr Dingle, you, you'll sleep as late as you like and everything will be right. Mm. And I put another horse that I had because I used to swap them over because they were doing a lot of miles so I harnessed up a little draft horse in a motor wheel lorry not with wooden wheels a motor wheel mm -hmm. and drove in when I got in there Edward had just been born and they'd wiped him up and there he was eight and three quarter pound mm -hmm. and Frances told me more or less straight away she said the nurse has said I think I can hear a horse coming down the road hang on Mrs Dingle you'll have to wait till your husband gets here she's I'm not waiting any longer <laughs> Anyway, he was he was there. <laughs> and out came Edward. Yeah, out came Edward, yes. <laughs> now, <laughs> getting back to the dairies. The dairies, uh, yes. Yeah. You were all of, what, 17 or something? Oh, earlier. Mm. Oh, yeah, well, um, I was I was an improver to the trade. There was no apprenticeship available. Mm. My master in trade, he put me on, and he, I never finished any course with him. But you but, learnt along the way. And mm. when... when uh, Bill Knight, my old master in trade, when he retired and his business was, the property was sold, mm. I'd set up at the back lane at home behind the house and the horse and mm. everything else. He worked for me and then he taught me the, the, the wheelwright trade, repairing mm. and building wooden wheels. If he didn't teach me, I wouldn't have been able to do all these no, now. Absolutely. So. You were mentioning <laughs> about the dairies. What was the sort of day you had when you were Doing, doing a milk round. Yes. Mm. Well, you'd be up, a, you'd be up at half past twelve, quarter to one in the morning. Whether you had a a, a late happy night or <laughs> or a long day or whatever you like, it mm. was told by a couple of the older drivers that were matured. Mm. Don't knock yourself around too much because mm. you'll suffer the when you get to out the of bed. Day. Yeah, because they used to play hard and work hard, mm. and when you're young, you do. But anyway, um, I did a. Milk round over three years, I think, around about. Saw a lot of funny things on the rounds. Mm -hmm. I just started off at St Kilda, mm -hmm. and there was funny sights down there. I can imagine. It'll be worse now. You wouldn't go out now, but it, it was harmless in mm -hmm. those days. So where did you drive from to? From Caulfield to uh, Argyle Street near High Street, mm -hmm. uh, the Ideal Dairy. There were about oh, nine or ten horses there. 
and I drive down with my horse, park that and put my horse in the stable and pull mm. the, the milk cart horse out of the mm. and harness him up and then I'd do the round and I'd come back and I'd have to book in the landing and then swap horses back again and drive. And then I'd put a day, I'd go to bed for a few hours and get up and work through the day. So where did you drive to, some of the suburbs? Well, there were dairies that needed their horses shod. Some were pretty local. Mm. There was uh, Parton's Dairy, they were near Glen Huntley Road. Some of the little dairies were, there was Coram's Dairy and little dairies everywhere, mm. up mm. laneways and all sorts of mm. places. So it could take you anywhere from, what, you'd go right round Melbourne in a day? Oh, well, it just depends where mm. they didn't ring you regularly. Some, so, some dairies that might have only had two or three horses, but some had to be the last dairy that I was doing because they were, they were getting cut out. Mm. They were finishing. It was getting too expensive to, to maintain things and do things. Islands dairies, they had 36 horses on the road. I was driving my horse and brake, long shaft brake, uh, with shoes I'd made. I used to make shoes every Saturday morning. I'd make 15 to 20 set. I could make three sets an hour on the anvil. That's pretty quick. Yeah, inch by three eight and inch by half. Mm. I would put anything up to 10, 10 sets on, up to 10 set in one day and drive the horse back home at the end of the day. The horse would do probably about 34 miles. Mm. But that's uh, well over 30 years ago. I was a bit younger and fitter then. <laughs> if I've, the aches and pains have come yes. now, they're different. And, and you mentioned about having to go to South Melbourne Council at one stage. South Melbourne Council. Um, to do some, some work. Oh, uh, Port Melbourne. Oh, Port Melbourne. Yeah, was a little yes. Crookshank Street behind mm. Pickle Street. There was the uh, Bill Osborne or Squeaker Osborne, his name was, his nickname. He had stores in Plummer Street and he was a carrier and he owned the horses and he hired them. Mm. And I took on the horses uh, for shoeing at the end of the era, I suppose you'd say. I did them for over 12 months probably. I've still got my books that I entered in. Uh, my job books. Oh, really? Yeah, it mm. goes back right, right mm. back to 19. You'll be able to exhibit those somewhere up on oh, the wall. Yeah, my son might. <laughs> but yes. anyway, yeah, there was five horses there because I went down there with a another farrier one Saturday morning, and and I was asking all these questions and what's this and who's that and and he said there's one fellow there that you don't want to get near. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, he's got flowers on his horses, winkers. And I said, what's he got them there for? He said, he's a little bit different than the others. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. He said, well, keep away from him. And I didn't know what he meant, really. I was too busy doing the work. One morning, I one of them rang me up, horse that had its shoe off. They used to kick him loose in the stables because mm. they used to get itchy. And they used to kick the floor. And I drove my horse down. I could get from Caulfield down, around um, Albert Park Lake, down to Port Melbourne, on little Crookshank Street, in half an hour. That's not bad. Around the lake, mm. summer or winter. Mm. I used to put the mittens on without the fingers in them and I'd rub Neatsford oil and mutton fat into my hands so they wouldn't crack open and bleed because it was mm. all in the weathers. Anyway, I got in there and there was the stable and the stableman had been, he'd mucked them out, the stalls out and swept the floors out and the collars and hames were on the horses and their uh, winkers. Now I was ready for the fellows to turn up at mm. 8 o'clock or whatever it was and I was there just after, just after dark. The mare there, she was a bit dirty because she was itchy mm. and I'd forgotten to bring a hook to pick her feet up mm. and I just got under her in the stall so she started to hammer her foot down and I slipped under her and she gave me a hell of a bash with her feet with one of her feet I was sort of in the way and I'm bouncing around out there talking to myself and one of the fellows one of the drivers turned up and it was the fellow that was a bit of a happy and gay fellow <laughs> And he put his arms around my shoulders and he said, I'll help you. He said, I'm, I'm a masseur. I said, I'm right, thanks. <laughs> and you're all about 17. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He must have thought, this is good. <laughs> there was an experience because I wasn't ready for that either. <laughs>
Oh, well, yeah. you know, it's one of those life's experiences. Yeah, they that, that I you... can't tell you all of them. No. <laughs> but we will go on we to will. some other yeah, things yeah. and we'll take a break and we shall return no, shortly. You're listening to 3MDR 97.1 on your dial, live and streaming in a studio and steed. Hi everyone, I'm the Ghost Rider and I present the golden age of rock and roll on Monday afternoons between 1 and 3. So tune in and relive the music from the 50s and 60s with the Ghost Rider on the golden age of rock and roll right here on 3MDR 97.1 FM. Hi, this is Old Shep from Harmonica Riff Raff. Join me Wednesday drive time from 5 to 7pm for an Australian tribute show to the Mississippi saxophone. Special segments, interviews, lessons, but mostly cross-harp riffs. We're here on 3MDR 97.1 FM, voice of the Danny Knox. Do you like soul? Do you like zen? Do you like the 60s and the 80s? Then listen to the Upbeat Soul Show every Thursday with your host, Peter Kessels, between 11am and 1pm, right here on 3MDR 97.1 FM, the voice of the Dandenongs and beyond. Ah, 3MDR 97.1 live and streaming. That's uh, the overture from the film Gallipoli. And I'm just, I've got it on YouTube and I'm just looking at the, 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 the picture on the, on the screen and there's a, a very young Mel Gibson's face there. And mm. uh, it was quite some time ago when you think about it, that film was made. It was yes, a long time yeah. ago. Now, just continuing with Bernie Dingle in his days as a milky and as an essential service and with 
uh, so many milk deliveries around Melbourne and about 50 horse casualties a year it was then delivering milk and he talks about going to St Kilda um, and re- recounts uh, a bit of a, a funny episode uh, but then we switch to the Kokoda Trail and talking about how horses weren't as good as the donkeys because they couldn't cross their front legs and they couldn't grip and it just is appalling the situation that oh, developed. Oh, the, the tragedy. Mm. It, it's, it's Absolute just tragedy. astonishing, yeah. But Bernie says it in such a way that is absolutely fascinating to listen to. So we start with Bernie again. Bernie off air was telling me in his delivery days of the dairy when he was a youngster he went in St Kilda is that right? Princess Street turned left I, I served the vicar on the corner and then down Fitzroy Street just as I got round the corner there's some ladies I thought sang out milkman and I turned round and I saw the station wagon a white one painted Sammy Lee Lay girls and I didn't know one from the other I walked over and I thought saw these beautiful girls women and I, the closer I got I I thought, they're not exactly what I thought they were. One of them put her hand across the other one to the driver's side Mm. with a dollar note between her fingers, and she said, Two pints, milk please, darling. Keep the change, dear. (laughs) (laughs) So that was that. Did people leave money out and remember money on the bottle? Yeah, under... under, uh, All over. With little notes? Yeah, all that. Did you get some strange notes that were put under the bottles? I've kept some of the little letters, too. Oh, oh, have you now? (laughs) But the the other drivers thought I was being taken... In hand. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Oh, can't tell you now. <laughs> <laughs> but I've kept the little notes. Oh, really? <laughs> I've had them for 35, 40 years. Oh, yeah, oh. I, I've never thrown anything out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, a you're a bit uh, of a hoarder, are you? No, uh, doing the milk round. There was Lieber's Court, big brick property that was built old, and it was mm-hmm. on a good, good block of land. Because that used to be the Paris end of St Kilda many years ago, before been. it went into decline, mm, and then it sort right. of come back again. And there was a customer by the name of. And uh, she lived with a father. She must have been the daughter, I think. That's right. And I used to deliver two pints every day. I had to go up the pathway. Mm. And sometimes Miss Cummings would be in our front veranda. She was, she'd get the milk off me, mm. but she was a little bit different. No different ways, I suppose. I wouldn't see her for three or four days, and then and then I'd see her for a couple of days. She used to, mm. she must have been, I don't know what was wrong with her, but she was, she used to make me, she's coming and give you me a lemon drink and hot water, kiss and. And, uh, <laughs> and there's a big grin across yeah. his face, by I, the way. I was a bit sort of naive then, but anyway. I, had you turned 18 then? No, I don't think I had. <laughs> You're still 17. Clock back, but then, and she said I left a, I left something out for George, and I said no, I didn't see it. It was a, a carrot or and something. And George is the, George is, the, is, the is, yes, the horse. Anyway, uh, and she wrote me a letter about that and left it out for me mm. about the lettuce and the, this and that and the other. And one particular morning, must have been in the warmer weather. And I said, "Oh, good morning, Miss Cummings. Cream on Sundays and all mm. that sort of thing." And uh, oh, she said, "Would you like to come in? I've got another drink for you." I said, "Oh, all right." And I just happened to follow mm. in. She had a nightdress on. Mm. You can't uh, done up. And she said, "I won't be a minute. I'll go and see father." And I thought. Oh, What's yeah. going on no. here? <laughs> and she said, oh, the milkman's here, Dad. And he said, is he? Well, he said, this morning when I get up, he said, I'm going to ring the dairy so we can get another milkman. <laughs> Why was well, that? She woke him up to say hello to me. <laughs> oh, she was a little bit Yes. Oh, right, but, OK. Uh, but, but she always used to put some a, a note of money mm. in, a, mm. in an envelope to our milkman. 
Oh, right. And I've still got them. Oh, no, but then, I've just kept them because yeah. it was part of my working as a young lad. Uh-huh. You know, it had right. nothing to do with anything else. Yes. You so know? when you moved here in Nanagoon, what, 30, 20, uh, 31 years? 31 years ago. What's your favourite piece here in the in the museum? Well, you must have several, I imagine. I think the, the representation of animals in war is the one that mm. touches me the most, affects me the most, because it's so a manservant in peace and war for over 5,000 mm. years. Well, I'm standing right next to a horse. <coughs> They're open top tin line panniers for the mm. Australian Expeditionary Force or the British Labour Battalions. Mm. For I, can, yeah, I can see you've got tools, various things. Tools, yeah, tools building, yes. building bridges. Mm. They, were the wor- they were the tradesmen in the war. Mm. And those pan- uh, the engineers. They mm. were the, they're mm. engineers and they in these wallets were detonators and fuses mm. for explosive experts as well so they could mm. blow an area to make a pave mm. a road mm. to get through. Well, I'm five, five and three quarters tall, and I tell you, I don't even reach the rump <laughs> of the horse. I'd have difficulty, I think, in getting up on one of these. Yeah, and you've got the donkeys, the donkey, of course. Yes. Yes. Were, that pack saddle was used in New Guinea with the first animal pack transport. And they were used right through the First and Second World War. Mm-hmm. I've restored all the... I do my own leather work as well. That's for funerals, but that's a, a, a permanent memorial to a chap we've known for many years in the family. Mm-hmm. He was in the first animal pack transport with the 9th mm. Division. The Gordon W. Cook. There, and we mm. dedicated this some time mm. ago. Isn't that lovely? Mm. We were... Yeah, and I understand, I'm looking here, the horseman of, of Kokoda. That's right. He, Australia sent a few hundred horses to New Guinea. Mm-hmm. There were two ship loads, and Gordon was on the second ship, and they were to drop anchor and unload at New Guinea, and the first ship was hit and sunk by the Japs, and he was in the second ship with the horses. Gordon was... Oh, we've known him for many, many years. He's been gone for a while now, but he, he told me a lot of stories about himself and about how it was over there. They couldn't penetrate without the horses, and the Canadians sent about 1,800 mammoth mules. They were the bigger mules. Were they suitable for, for that area? Were they suitable for Kukana? Oh, yes, they were better than horses because oh, right. they're more nimble. Yes. They're used to pack. Some of the horses that were trained in flat areas in Australia. Couldn't do the, the hills. They weren't used to holding a load. They couldn't hold it. They used to bolt and they just have to let them go and they'd gallop over a cliff and down. Oh. But what was the problem with the horses over there? The tracks were that wide one minute uh, and, and that wide the next. Right. And, and, they, and what you're illustrating, the people can't see, is it about a, a metre wide and then like a every about animal, 30 centimetres every wide? Every animal had a horse handler. Mm. They're called horse handlers. They'd had, the horses had a, a pack saddle with flies on their on the pack saddle, which weighed up to about 160, 180 pounds. Mm. And there was anything up to... Gordon told me that he's seen up to 300 in a line, mm. taking supplies right up the top. He was saying that horses were a bit more awkward than a mule, because mm. mules can plat their legs, they're more nimble. I see. And bred mm. for that. Mm. But the horse is a little bit awkward. If a horse faltered, slipped and, and started to panic, first thing you'd think to do is to hold him. But that's the silly thing to do. They were told never to do that, because he'll take you with him. Down he'd go with a pack of supplies mm. on his back, down a... 50, 100, 200 feet down into a very slow-moving dark river. Oh. And he'd plunge down with the load on his back, and there'd be a big splash, and then it'd be a few bubbles, and everything was still. And all of a sudden, you'd think someone was working in a with a, a washing machine. It'd mm. be a big crocodile rolling and drowning that horse under the water, oh. turning it round and round until it died. Oh. And then it'd, and there'd be nothing. Mm. And that crocodile, that'd be 20, 25 feet long. He'd take that whole horse, mm. half a tonne of it, a bit less, mm. and it's packed upstream and tuck it under a bank for about a week and a half so it'd be soft enough to eat. Oh. And then the soldiers with Gordon, they'd be the animal handlers, they'd be the ongoing supply 
line was all the time, and they were running the flying fox to get across some of the gorges because they were too far to get mm. down and back oh, up, up again. again. Yes. And uh, Gordon was saying they'd be watching the horses' feet, they'd be watching behind them, they'd be watching down there, mm. and every now and again you'd see, or so often, for where a horse had been eaten, mm. there'd be the remains of the pack saddle slowly floating down on top of the water. Now, Gordon was... Oh, dreadful. Gordon was told by one of his senior officers, Coda, I've got a job for you, Sergeant. He said, what's that, sir? He said, the biscuit bombers are replacing the horses pretty well now. They had 80 horses left, I think, and uh, he said to Gordon, he said, I want those all shot. They Couldn't could, take them with them? The uh, Highlanders and the Lowlanders. The Lowlanders was the uh, the fuzzy wuzzies, I believe. Mm, mm. And the Highlanders, they were cannibals. Oh. The, ca the, ca the Highlanders were eating the Japanese, and down further, the Japanese were eating us. And oh. Gordon said to the officer, he said, sir, he said, um, can I ask you a question? Did you get on with it? There's a war on. Mm. He said, well, the families down here, the fuzzy wuzzies, they've been, the natives, he said, they've been really helpful mm. getting the wounded and doing all the things that we needed them to do to help us. It was a terrible place. They're domesticated. He said, they've got their little gardens, children they're bringing up, their families. Do you think, sir, we could sell them a couple of horses or mares mm. cheap to help them with their little mm. um, little area. Mm. And he said, right, but he said, I want those others shot today. Mm. One horse that... They were using the limbers, the back section of a limbered wagon. That's mm. the back part. And there's a front part that that hooks on, so it's an articulated wagon. Mm. So they used the half wagons at Kokoda because the horses couldn't pull the wheelers because mm. it was too muddy, too steep. Because right. it was... The horses were never... It rained all the time. And if it didn't ride for a day, so... It would be sloshed. The mud would mm, suck mm. the shoes off the horse's feet. And they oh. had no hair on their legs right up above their joints. Oh. And when they fed them different times of the day, kerosene tins wide up to the mm. trees and that, yes. the horses were led, led up, tied up to there where they ate. And instead of just standing there, they'd throw their feet up, put them in the tins, so they'd give their legs a break from the mud. Oh. And Gordon said to me, we had a bit of a truck with one horse in, the, in, a, in, a, in a limber. It used to kick a bit. He said, no. He said, it was going to hurt one of us. It was just dirty. So he got his 303. There was no one around. And they were building roads or something. So he shot it. And he got a sledgehammer out of the back of the, the limber, smashed its leg. And because the officer was told, and they said, oh, Gordon said to the officer, he said, that horse was uh, kicking quite terribly. He said, he said he broke his leg, so I had to put him down. <laughs> Oh, goodness, and you're telling tales. Yeah. Oh, that was all over there. Yes. But, uh, oh, that were mm. terrible times. Mm. Yes, so here you are. You've been there for him. A horseman will be missed by the yeah. town. The Gordon W. Cook. Yeah, and we yeah. dedicated this some time mm. ago. Isn't that lovely? Mm. A lovely Pretty commemoration. Sure. There's yes. some of the horses that went to New Guinea. Oh, whole truckloads. Well, they're truck trains. Yeah. <laughs> And, yes, yeah. thousands of that's them. That's the last of his army mm. um, mates, mm. and they're nearly all gone. And that's me posing with Gordon mm. for a photo before they all disappeared. Well, uh, he was... you certainly have <coughs> so many memories mm. in this place, leading me up, not a garden path, not but... Really. <laughs> this is one of the honour boards. I think you said earlier you had 40, yeah, is that right? Yeah, 40 yeah. honour well, boards? There's two more in the, in the foyer where we uh, have a cup Enormous, of tea. yeah, absolutely enormous. There's three of them. One, uh, two are up mm. the other end in the foyer there, Second World War, and the, this one first. The three of them came out of the CBA Bank bo boardroom in 82. Right. There was a takeover by Westpac. Right. And where was this in the city? In Melbourne. And while the CBA Bank were waiting to vacate due to the takeover by Westpac, they were organising to have the three boards removed from their boardroom walls and sent to the tip in 1982 because no bank wanted them. Sent to the tip? Hmm. And you rescued them? Uh, Bruce Ruxton re rescued them because he's he Victorian, yes. 20-something years. Yeah, an amazing man. He was. Yes. Some people do.
didn't like him, but I did because he was direct. Straight. You he, knew exactly no where you stood. I tell you what, the media loved him because he always no, was good oh, for a quote. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Jolly on the spot quote. Yeah. Their their staff went away and served, worked for the bank, and they're the ones that didn't come home. It's just a magnificent uh, edifice here. Uh, it's well, just great. Yeah, st- it's huge, absolutely huge. Up, they really are. Mm. They're beautiful. I'll Lovely. show you down the other end on the way back. Okay, we're that's a, wandering we're around again. Captured German artillery from France and Belgium, mm-hmm. taken by Australians. This is for the army horseshoes. That's a forge mm-hmm. for getting yeah. the shoes hot. Right. And that's the anvil. That's all portable. Horses and mules and donkeys had to be shod all the time. Of uh, course, with, yes. With the, all the trades. So this is on the spot, I mm, tell you. It's, right. it's like a portable barbecue without mm. the lid. Without the lid. <laughs> that, there's a lot lot in there. You've got cabinet upon cabinet there's, of... Uh, that bugle. Of which the listeners can't see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, bugle there, that was... Mm. Um, Pulled up out of the mud in the Western Front for where a Salvation Army bandsman was blown to pieces. Oh, his mate Now, that dog is a real dog. Oh, you had it stuffed. Mounted. <laughs> Someone said, oh, no, just holding hands will do. <laughs> anyway, that, that size dog, it's one of over... Cross between a whippet and a... It looks like a bit sausage dog there, too. Mm. Bit, of, bit of bits. Yes. About 100,000 trained terriers or around about. Mm. Yes. They were trained in England and they were sent to the across to the First World War, to the remedial and frontline trenches across France and Belgium, and they were called rat dogs. You know what a rat dog was to do? No. They were placed over the corpses in the trenches and what were near mm-hmm. hanging on wire to mm-hmm. stop, the in, stop the rats eating their way into the bodies and breeding. Oh. And, uh, well, the Germans were living off rats for five years, and there's some, that's their, what they pull, uh. pulled up for lunch. Yes. There's Adolf Hitler as a runner before the, in the First World War, Mm, there's a picture of him here, yes. He, um, with all jokes aside, we know he was terrible later, but he was very, very good for Germany for a mm. fair while because mm. someone gave a lady a question in amongst the media at mm. one stage a few years ago, and she said, what was what date did the Second World War break out? And she said at the Alliance Treaty at King Louis Palace at Versailles in 1923. That's when the embargo mm. put onto the German people by France. That was the recipe for the Second World War. That's and true. I'm, yeah, and I'm just looking at, at a dog here yeah, that's a with, ge- with a mask with on. a gas mask mm. on. It's a German messenger dog for the Battle of the Somme. And, and it's, got, it, it's, it's, got it's made a, of canvas, is it? Uh, and it's canvas. got its eyes covered, its ears covered. It's, it's, oh, uh, it's wonder if it could breathe. It's covered in rabbit hair. First, mm. with the hair on the hair of the dog, mm. so that stops the mustard gas getting into the dog. Oh, I see. And it's covered and layered. All that dog could do is see through the lenses and run, and mm. that's his cylinder for his messages. Mm. And uh, there was one particular dog that was sent by the Germans on a message, and he never returned for 19 hours, and he couldn't tell him where he'd been. Think of that one, but it's in the book. Goodness me. Have you heard of Edith Cavell? I can't say I have. Mm-hmm. He's putting on his glasses so I yeah, can read it. It's, it's very tiny, so I'm amazed you can read it. That um, That's a blown-up postcard. We have mm. the original. Yes. And that's actually happened. She was a voluntary nurse, condemned to death by a military tribunal in Belgium under the charge of having favoured the evasion of British soldiers. Miss Edith Cavell of Norwich, a voluntary nurse, is taken to the execution ground on the 12th of October at daybreak. She faints. A German officer gives his soldiers the order to fire. They, they hesitate to shoot on the prostate body of a woman. Fiend takes his revolver and, leaning upon his victim, deliberately blows her brains out. There was another nurse to go soon as she was shot. Mm. England was it's a little bit political, but they could not exhume her body until after the war had ended. They wanted to bring her home. And she was brought back home, back to London, so taken to Westminster Abbey after she was prepared uh, for a full service, and she was buried in consecrated ground. I have the little brochure booklet that was a penny or something, or tuppence, mm. 
at that time. Mm. It tells you the four the minutes and all. Mm. I tell you what, listeners, it beggars belief. Ignorance that many of us have, you come into this museum and you you walk in, you think, oh, yes, yes. Mm. But as you walk around, you see things that you've never seen before and when it's explained to you, it's no longer... It's not lip service. No, exactly. It's not lip service, as you're saying. It actually means something. And it's called The Reason, the reason Why. why. Mm. I see the easier this week. Yes, and we'll finish off with that. Mm. The poem by the name of uh, The Reason Why is what a fellow was looking for and he wrote to the, the archives in, in England. Mm. Anyway, here it goes. This is the address. Uh, Sir, do you know a poem that describes a conversation between a young and old man about the reason for remembering the wartime fallen? His name is Fred Earl from Pimlico in London. And this is the reply. Yes, we have this very moving poem in our poetry archives. And here are the four words, Ed. Why do you march, old man, with medals on your chest? Why do you grieve, old man, for those friends you laid to rest? Why do your eyes gleam, old man, when you hear the bugles blow. Tell me, why do you cry, old man, for those days so long ago? I tell you why I march, young man, with medals on my chest. I tell you why I grieve, young man, for those I laid to rest. Through misty fields of gossamer silk comes visions of distant times, when boys of such a tender age march forth to battle lines. We buried them in a blanket shroud, their young flesh scorched and blackened. In a communal grave so newly dug, bloodstained gauze and bracken and you ask me why I march young man I march to remind you all but for those apple blossom youths you'd never know freedom at all well thank you so much for your time thank you for having me for that time thank you very much very emotional <clears throat> I've been talking with Ernie Dingle and spending some very valuable time both to me and hopefully to your listeners or our listeners from the Light Horse and Field Artillery Museum in Nanagoon and it's just outside of Pakenham. I do thank you and Francis, your wife, for your time. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to 3MDR 97.1 on your dial, live and streaming at a studio and Steve. The Alinda Community House car boot sale and market is on again. Car boots, market stalls, food and coffee plus live entertainment. Come along to the Alinda Community House on Saturday the 22nd of April, 9am to 3pm and grab yourself a bargain. Stallholder inquiries welcome. Phone 0409 960 or 9751 Visit och.net.au for further information. Sponsoring 3MDR 97.1 FM. Then sit back, put your feet up and relax with Folk on the Fringe. 7 to 9pm here on 3MDR 97.1 FM. Also streaming to the web at 3MDR.com. Folk on the Fringe, on the fringe of the city, on the fringe of the day. Hello, I'm Anne Kreber and I'd love you to share the good life with me every Monday afternoon between 3 and 5pm on 3MDR 97.1 FM. Jenny McCormick looks after the panel, their book reviews and author interviews, film previews and conversations with a wide range of interesting people. Music too, including a lot of versions of Georgia on my mind. Please share my good life. It's a good life if you want to live it. And you're listening to 3MDR 97.1 on your dial. 
That is Judy Ann Steed and Paul on the panel. And it's a special edition today. I just thought you would enjoy uh, the the machinations and the, the good and the bad and the ugly, I suppose, of uh, uh, Bernie Dingle, who uh, has been at the Light Horse and Field Artillery Museum in Nanagoon for the past 31 years. So we've gone, you know, with the enormous sheds and the memorabilia and the honour boards, and we'll, he's going to mention something about that, and the dioramas, and the, oh, it's just extraordinary, the number of full-sized horses, extraordinary. But we have a piece of music uh, to put for you, and then we will uh, go to Bernie again, because I thought after the third part, um, you know, I thanked him very much, and he said, oh, I want to show you this. So uh, we went to a diorama of uh, 100 feet below, as if it was a, a dugout 100 feet below, and how the soldiers survived, and the Battle of uh, the Mon or Mons, and the Angel of Mons, and swords, and how important the pigeons were for the Secret Service. But just now we'll go to a track that uh, may be familiar to some of you, and then go to the final part from Bernie Dingle.
Well, that was Margaret Whiting with Till We Meet Again. And I understand the brother wrote the song. So uh, it's just very fitting that we finish off with Bernie. uh, And as I mentioned before, how the soldiers had to survive uh, the torrid conditions. Oh, and when you hear about the Angel of Mons, you can believe it or not believe it. It's up to you. And after that, uh, just uh, a couple of other bits and pieces about swords that were given to, uh, given to Bernie. I nearly said to me, but to Bernie by an Albert Simons. And we have a couple of little bits about Albert, Albert as well. So on to Bernie at the uh, the uh, Light Horse and Field Artillery Museum at Nanagoon. I'm still with Bernie Dingle, the uh, Light Horse and Field Museum in Nanagoon. He's just taken me over to a replica, a bunker, and he'll tell you a bit more about it. And it's the Battle of Mons. 1914 between the British and Germans. Battle of Mons took place in 1914. The British, running up to that time where the Germans started shelling them, they had to prepare bunkers, dig down 100 feet with the with the use of water pumps. Why 100 feet? Because they had to be down deep enough to be safe enough to be Mm. protected by the siege gun shells that were being fired over from the Germans. If they were only shallow bunkers, they'd have been blown back out of the ground. They were shoulder to shoulder, digging 24 hours a day with the pumps going, experiencing trench foot because they were were wet for weeks and weeks Mm. and a lot of them were sent home on hospital ships for amputations below the knees. Goodness. The, um, The bodies were slipping through under the in the mud down to the where the British were digging because Mons is part of uh, Belgium and it's called the Salient it's below sea level so there were bodies moving across under where they were digging with the tide under the ground and while the and the soldiers were digging and every now and again a corpse would slip up between the soldiers. How many soldiers were involved in all of this? I know the, um, tell you, but I'll mm. just, just get this bit done. Mm. Once the British dug down deep enough and set up their uh, something for mm. for a brew, their signals for their pigeons, their wireless head communication. And there. a corona typewriter yeah, there. That's a very early one, <laughs> 1913. Now there's a couple of infantrymen there. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a chook. Yeah, they're all those eggs. They got them off the Belgians in different places. Yes. There's a pigeon on his basket. Big Alsatian you're sitting on his back at the moment. That's a trench soldier. These are infantry. They're a different type of a job. Mm-hmm. He's for night raids in trenches. He's got 11 mils grenades. Glad about that, the reproduction. That's his uh, cut-down, heavier bayonet that yeah. was, he's mm. sorted out for himself because he's on mm. his own. The he's dogs, got a baton as well. With the, a, yeah, the, mm. the dogs... Mm. The dogs were trained to kill. Every now and again, an officer would give the, the trench soldier a, a chore to do. He'd have to go out in the dark with his dog, mm. and that dog had to sniff out where the Germans where the openings to their tunnels were. And when that dog was all excited, ready to go, he'd unleash the dog, and that dog would bound down tunnel. Mm. The Germans had Alsatians, but they also had Dobermans, where they were bigger than Alsatians. They were trained to rip a soldier's throat out. And when the screaming stopped, he couldn't go down with a handgun and and finish the soldiers off, Mm. because he'd alert the enemy and he'd be killed. Mm. He had to bludgeon them to death quietly. They mm. call it quiet killing. And that's, that's, oh, that's for that's All for these mental... It looks like a middle... Um, well, the they, Middle Ages they go, they thing go, that, that one of the knights they, would have had. They go back mm. to um, King John and the Roundheads. They They've were, got spikes on They them. were used in the First World War by the Br- British and the Germans. Mm. And Australians probably used them too. They manufactured their own from their own engineering mm. workshops out of what they could find. Oh. And after two or three hundred years, they were used 
they're still used today in the awards now. <gasps> really? And they use crossbows as well. You know the crossbows that we mm. use in mm. the, the days of Robin Hood? They had to ratchet them mm. to load them. And it wasn't a, an arrow, it was called a bolt with a head on it. And when they were fired in those days of mm. King John, one bolt would go through an oak door six inches thick without making a noise. So that's what they were using in the trenches. So if you've got half a dozen Germans chasing you up, in single file, you'd let one go and it'd go right through the lock. It wouldn't make a noise. But they, in um, in the in overseas now, they're still using the same thing, only they're more modern made, but they're mm. still the same thing. They're for what you call quiet mm. killing. Mm. So, Wars are, are just horrible things. Yeah. It, it, and it, to me, it, it, the business people make mm. parts oh, of the war. Yeah, well, it's got to be real, it's otherwise mm. we're telling, we're fooling ourselves. That's above ground in the mud in Mons, represents a, a so called apparition for which was envisaged by the Germans and the British in 1914. It was called the Angel of Mons. Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. Yes. Well, that's meant to be the Angel of Mons mm. overlooking the It's carnage. an angel statue overlooking yeah. the what, you, what you've done. Yes. There's a casualty of a, uh, an artillery horse mm -hmm. in skeletal form and a dead driver. And there's an artillery piece, a, gu a gun carriage limber in the mud as a, as a, a diorama. Mm -hmm. It's taken me two years to put that together. Goodness but me. That's, there's a bit of a story with this just before we start. That could be like a warning at the time. If something's not done soon to stop, it's going to go for years and take millions of lives. Well, mm. it didn't stop and it did. The British, they dug down deep and set, set up their tunnels for escape and all sorts of things and mm. their communications and their this, that and the other. The Germans started sending salvos of heavy artillery fire over to where the British were to their remedial and frontline trenches. Each time the shells landed near their lines, the British were experiencing the loss of over 500 soldiers per barrage so many times a day seven days a week week after week they realized they couldn't even retreat the retreat from Mons was so were they all killed the British soldiers were experiencing all the cordite and the shelling it never stopped they were starting to be purged with diarrhea due to the cordite <sighs> they were eventually individ individually um, reporting to their officers in charge stating that they believe they saw something overlooking them from the sky and they believe they saw an angel and the officers dismissed their mm -hmm. their few words Germans had sent artillery fire they bombarded them and bombarded them as long as they felt like they had to in preparation for a cavalry assault they had thousands of cavalry they moved forward with their cavalry regiments to break through the British lines when the Germans and their horses got to the first front line trenches to break through the horses under the German troopers were rearing up backwards they were bolting every way bar forward because what they believed they saw from their side were over life-size cavalry on a ridge and the angel of Mons was overlooking them from the sky the horses were bolting everywhere but going forward mm. the hospital ships were leaving the port near Mons somewhere mm. Mm. on the coast oh, this is with, the Germans or no, the, the British. British thousands of uh, casualties were taken to England offloaded onto the wharves and taken to hospitals for urgent medical treatment they were casualties each and every soldier had the one story to tell what they believed they saw it saturated the immediate area it saturated England as far as Scotland the public had mixed anxieties a lot of mm. different feelings mm. there King George V was realising there was trouble with everything he had his what you call aide-de-com by the name of Arthur Mason he worked for the King most of his adult life he, he handled his business affairs in writing mm. under the, for the King he was told by King George V to go and put an appendix together and have it brought before him so he'd go over it himself and present it to the public as some sort of an explanation. Mm. Well, Arthur Mason, Arthur Mason receiving this command from the king, he said, this is ridiculous, it's mad, it's hallucinations. But he couldn't contradict the king. And he so said, he had to do it. He mm. did, he did it. He admitted later on, upon 
finishing this appendix for King George V, I've realised it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole professional career under the King. It frightened the tribes out of him. England had, at the end of the First World War, England had already compiled their appendix. Germany put their appendix together at the end of the war. Oh. Later on, mm. was, uh, the war was over, of course. Appendix were put together to be gone over by both countries. Mm. And when they went over, the both, both mm. countries went yes. right over them thoroughly. Not one word it altered from one side to the next. Isn't that incredible? Some people say, oh, it's, mm. it's a loser, no. blah, blah, blah. I've put that up there because it's fascinated me a little bit. Mm. I didn't invent it. If you look up Angel of Mons, it'll hit you with a million words. Mm. So it's something happened. Mm. That's all something I can happened. say. But it's something that I've had different groups of all ages. One fellow that was, he, he, he was mm. with, with a small group, yes. elderly fellow, and he said, I was with British intelligence when I was a lot younger. He said, congratulations, because I just read what mm. I've told you. Yes. And I said, oh, thank you. I said, what did you tell me that for? He said, well, when I first started with intelligence, he said, I had to go into their military archives and I had to read and learn that. And he mm. said, you've said it word for word. Isn't that amazing? But I've had people... Reactions? Reactions mm. of... It's like it really happened. Mm. Like they, their father must have told mm. one of them or something. So it's gone down... It's gone uh, down somewhere. Through through different generations. I'd say so. Mm. It's not mm. It's not everybody's want to know, mm. but it's some, it's, it's something happened. Mm. Something happened. And I've, I've... Unexplained. Well, I've explained it as there far it as is. I could there. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I'm looking at swords. Yeah, short um, swords. Short swords. They're no, tell me. That's a sword hanger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which were, has a little hook on the end. That's French. That's Austrian. So that's the, a lot older. Yes. They were carried by artillery and pioneers. Mm. Mm. Uh, for, they, were in, they were used in war for over 200 years, right up until 1918, at the end of the First World War, mm. by nearly every country. They were used by pioneers. And I'm looking uh, at, at... It looks a bit like a Japanese not a sword. I'm trying to describe it, but not very well. They were named a gutting sword. Oh, and they were they were carried by artillery mm -hmm. and po and pioneers that were with other artillery to stop the advance of cavalry jumping between the guns over the parapet, and that was the empty the horse oh, on so the way over. Oh, so you'd stick you'd it up in the air. It, Ooh. The horse goes. Oh, back legs went over you, he'd be empty, but it'd be all over you mm. too. Now you mentioned that there was another poem that you yes, had, yes, so I'm just following. Yeah. Just a story on the way. The pigeons played a hell of a role in the First World War and before, mm. and they still are today. And there's all sorts of birds. There was one British pigeon with the British Secret Service in the Western Front. It flew 100,000 missions. 100,000? Might have been only from here to the corner. Yes. The British Secret Service. Oh. And I'd, I don't know if that... You've heard of the Victoria Cross, the yes. highest award for valour? Yes, yes. The Victoria Cross, the equivalent of the Victoria mm. Cross for animals called the Dickon Medal. Mm. And the earliest honour for, for an animal for service that I can recall with what I've, I've found out over the years is called the, the Kabul Star, mm. and that's an Eastern honour. There was a, a British cavalry officer with his horse. He served in the Crimea. When the War of the Crimea was over, he was one of the lucky ones that was able to bring his horse back. A lot of them froze to death over there. Uh, that horse saved his life on numerous occasions mm. in warfare. The horse came back on the ship, back to England with him. The horse was led up to the barracks where the officer's mess was, and that horse was led up the steps into the officer's mess on the carpet. <laughs> you know yeah. what the British are like for ceremony. Yeah. 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 They're, they're the best in the world. Mm. That horse was placed in order of ceremony, mm. and it was presented with the Kabul star. How wonderful. Mm. That little pony there, that's her there, meant to be mm -hmm. her. That's her, and this is what we've created. Right. Her name is Kiss Lass. Kiss Lass? That was her name. Yes. And she was 
going blind and she was retiring at the mm. outbreak of the First World War. Mm. And the Purple Cross of Victoria with Violet Farmer, that was Farmer was a racing trainer in Caulfield, that's meant to be Violet as a 10-year-old, mm. mm. Violet Ethel Farmer. As a 10-year-old, she with Kiss Lass and there was other people helping, they hired one of these railway guards vans because they used to pony on them. And Pretty wide. Kiss Lass was taken down to the and unloaded and stood up under the clocks at Flinders Street mm. to canvas for donations for the Army veterinary for the animals in the war. And young, they, it was so surprising that they, they'd made so much, uh, they got a lot of contribution with it all from Violet. From a 10 to a 14-year-old, from 1914 to 1918, she raised over 700 pounds. That's a lot and, of money uh, in those days. And she she later married a racing trainer down at Mentone by the name of Bill Murrell, so she ended mm. up Violet Murrell. Oh, right. You've heard of Violet Murrell and Gary Owen? Oh, yes. Well, that's Violet, meant to be Violet. Yes. And that's a sketch of uh, Gary Owen up on the top ah, there. Ah, right. So there's, there's a history there. Mm. Now, up there... This is a military, but that's one of four saddles that belonged to Tommy Woodcock. He was Farlap Strapper. Yes. And there's some memorabilia of the era, mm. but it didn't belong to him, but the saddle did. Mm. The saddle did. Mm. That'd be worth a fortune. That's a rare vehicle, the ambulance mm. wagon. We've mm. had that at the Anzac Day March for many years, mm. quite a lot of years, and we used to take this earlier on. Mm. And, and you're uh, pointing to another wagon. You, another... How many wagons have we got in here? Oh, there'll be probably nearly 20 between a couple <laughs> out in the workshop. Goodness the, me. Uh, there's still some projects not mm. taken up. And the hogheading barrels, the what were they? 56 for? gallon or 300 mm. litre capacity for exporting whiskey. Uh-huh. Now they've been leased, bought, or borrowed, or whatever, for the by, mm. at the outbreak of the First World War by the government of the day. Yes. What Small, did they put in them? They were originally for whiskey. Yes. They were branded with the government brands on them, mm. lot numbers and dates branded on them all. Yes. And they were sent away by ship to the First World War with lard, flour, all sorts of ingredients for feeding hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers regularly. And they came back again as dunnage on a ship at the end of the war. So they tell their own story. I'm just going into a, right another room full of people. All the different yeah. types of yeah. service. This is a, what a, we call it a theatreetta or a mini yeah. So there are different sorts of uniforms yeah, of the era. going from... 1900, 1899 for the war right. in South Africa. Mm -hmm. That's All a, authentic uniforms. Yes, World War one Flying Corps pilot. Mm -hmm. That's Second World War. There's mm -hmm. RAAF, Second yeah. AIF, the AWARS and the Women's Land Army, the Salvation Army. Yes, They're the Salvos, Both yes. captains, and that's their harmonium. Oh, their wooden it looks like box. a miniature accordion, yeah, uh, a, a large or a half piano. So you've got two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fifteen. Fifteen yeah. fully dressed militia. We could spend the next six hours, I think, here, and I'm camping almost, but uh, we really do have to finish. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Again, uh, we've been speaking with uh, Bernie Dingle, the Light Horse and Field Artillery Museum in Nanagoon. I hope you've enjoyed it. Well, I hope you have been um, avidly listening. And, and Bernie is such a character. He really is such a character. Um, I have a track lined up for you, uh, and the band played Walsing Matilda. And I hope you enjoy that. And we'll come back and I'll tell you a little bit more about Bernie as well. And you're listening to 3MDR 97.1 on your dial, live and streaming. And it's Judy Ansteed and Paul on the panel. Hello. Hello. I'm Judy Scott from Roy Morgan Research. How would you like to earn extra money just for walking, talking and meeting new people? I've just bought a coffee. Mm, lovely. 
Lovely, thank you. As an interviewer for Australia's leading research company, Roy Morgan, you could earn extra money on weekends interviewing people in your neighbourhood for the Morgan Poll and Roy Morgan's Consumer Survey. Call us on 1800 011 819 or visit roymorgan.com to apply. Roy Morgan, proudly sponsoring 3MDR 97.1 FM. Tune into the dotted line with David Miller. Listen to some of the best independent Australian music and a live studio performance every week on Wednesdays 9 to 11 p.m. on 3MDR 97.1 FM. Well, we're back. That was a very moving uh, version of that song. I'm, I'm not 100% mm. sure whether Eric Bogle was singing that. I think he was. Mm. But, uh, yeah, but the, I have heard different versions of it, but that was appropriate, I think, with what you've been talking about and yes. uh, as a, a way to tail off those interviews. Mm. Um, actually, just after uh, Bernie had, had uh, spoken, you know, the, finally, he said, oh, he said, look, I need to show you... Uh, the, my workshop. It wasn't just a workshop, listeners. It was a series of workshops, and they were huge. And they everything was uh, just marked, scaled, in order. Everything was perfectly. You could put your hand on anything that you wanted, and there was a a working blacksmith's forge, and uh, then. Bernie took me to his office and out came. He bought four swords and apparently a King Iban sword sabre and there was a, a lightweight sword from Kashmir over 500 years old and there were about four, there were four of them, different sizes and different meanings and different uh, uses of, of the swords. And he mentioned just in passing that the late Albert Simons um, gave them to Bernie. And Albert, uh, from his early naval days, he went to sea at 13 on board this ship as a junior officer where he had to do 90 ceremonial uh, burials as part of his tasks. Could you believe it? I wonder how he swung that. Mm. Well, having having met the man, he was a, he was a very well known yeah. Melbourne oh. chiropractor, mm. and having met him and had some chiropractic work done years mm. ago, but I, he I used, he imagine. used Bowen as well. Mm. But he had magic in his hands, and he was an apprentice to Bill Mitchell, who uh, many uh, listeners may know that used to operate out of South Melbourne. And he would he worked on the South Paupers. Melbourne Footy Club. Yeah, players. princes and paupers. You know, would well, my pay ten was shillings a, or something. My father was a bricklayer, and his name, mm. ironically, was Albert as well. Mm. Uh, he was a World War Two veteran, and he came to Australia mm. in '49 after mm. the war. And mm. uh, he used to go to Bill Mitchell. Yes, and then to get Albert, his back done because being Albert a brickie, was his, yeah. his apprentice virtually. Yeah. And then Albert went on, and there was always a room full of of uh, uh, clients uh, that that were there, and he would spend a half an hour talking to me. I said, but you've got all these people in the waiting room. He said, oh, that's all right. <laughs> he keep talking. And uh, he, he was so good that doctors who couldn't diagnose or figure out what an X-ray, what the result of an X-ray, they would send their X-rays to Albert so that he would diagnose exactly what was going on and the X-rays. Oh, he certainly knew his onions. Mm. He only so passed, an he passed, passed away a few years back. Yeah, about five, five years ago. But an amazing mm. human being. 
uh, just an amazing person. So when he mentioned his name, how he'd given it, it, it was extraordinary. Well, now, Peter Kessels has just uh, come into the studio and he's joining us, uh, the audience, for the next two hours and just lighten the mood a little. Uh, but of course there will be Anzac, uh, uh, cere- not ceremonies, but there will be uh, the virtual, not celebration at all, it's just very, you know, commemorations. It's a commemoration like. and mm. a reminder of the yes. horrors mm. of war. To, to commemorate the people mm. and the families. and Mount Evelyn, Cockatoo, yeah. Dandenong Ranges, Wandon, Jembrook, Sylvan. Of course, it's uh, all happening Belgrave, here at Emerald. Uh, Lilydale, and of course mm. at Upway Belgrave, 3MDR will be there live. So, you know, yes, exactly. Now, what sort of music do you have for us this morning, Peter? Oh, France. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. Oh, that is beautiful. Uh, it just has... It's so romantic, along with the Italian um, sound. Okay, and I'm getting the wind-up signal from Paul here. Uh, we'll be doing it all again next week, and I'll be interviewing a 91-year-old who was uh, in the na- tried to get into the Navy, he couldn't, and then went into the army but he joined at 15 you know oh, oh look there's some astonishing oh, stories in that era just you know yeah oh went along yeah uh, and more so we'll do it all again next week thank you for joining us hope you've uh, learnt a little and we'll be back again next week cheers for now bye for now bye